A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned in my sermon that um, the opening prayer for each Sunday is an important thing, the collect. And uh, I don't preach much on the collects. Um, some people do when they're desperate. <laughs> but having said that, there's some good stuff in there that thematically set what we're thinking about. And we pray today, we ask God to help us to increase in us faith, hope, and charity, which are the theological virtues that we receive at our baptism. You know, we have from the Greeks the cardinal virtues, uh, and the theological virtues are what Christian people believe uh, are infused at our baptism. Faith, hope, and charity are sometimes faith, hope, and love, and it's interesting that even in the right to translation, they have kept charity, which is a, a good word to use, although it is widely misunderstood, and one of the reasons we translate it as love often is that uh, charity has a kind of lady bountiful sound to it, and uh, that's not its true intention. But somehow being charitable is not just merely the giving of your substance to worthy works, but you and I in our hearts and in our minds are called as Christian people to be charitable to each other and charitable to, the, to uh, maybe the plans of God as we understand God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. And the story in the gospel today is about that. So I'm going to preach on the gospel about the tax collector and the Pharisee. The official line for preachers and teachers in the church is to say that you and I work, pray, and give for the spread of the kingdom of God, which it says, what is the duty of all Christians in the catechism? The duty of all Christians is to work, pray, and give for the spread of the kingdom of God. Uh, we do it because we love God. But, you know, there's always that little cloud no bigger than a man's hand in the back of our minds, or at least my anecdotal evidence is this for myself and for people who speak with me about such things, that um, doing this is going to somehow pay dividends down the road. You know, dotting your I's and crossing your T's is... Um, an important thing, that there's a kind of um, uh, reservoir of capital that gets built up as the result of all of this. This is, this is uh, notwithstanding that we know, uh, in, in theological terms and other terms, people say, you know, it's not anything we do ourselves uh, that uh, gives us God's favor, but it is God's gracious gift to us. God's grace is God's favor freely given without regard to our merit. But when we see people that we don't think are worthy, uh, apparently receiving favor of any kind, it bothers a lot of people. I think at the food pantry, we see that often. Certainly Mother McNeil and Joe Greiner and the other volunteers at the food pantry, that uh, the, the first question is, in some people's minds, is do they deserve the help? You know, I mean, are they going to take something that, you know, maybe they're going to five or six food pantries and getting stuff. So how, why don't we check them out, right? 
Santa Maria Urban Ministry, actually, you can't get any food there if you're not in a certain series of zip codes. And that's a, there's re, there are reasons for that sort of thing. But be that as it may, uh, it's hard to say, you know, we leave the motives of individuals up to God, and our job is to give it. That's a hard thing. Does that mean you have to be an absolute fool about this? No, it doesn't. And we do exercise some sense about these matters. But, but the default position is, is uh, extending. And sometimes that's hard because uh, it just doesn't appear that the people who are the recipients of the charity deserve it. And that's really what's at the bottom of the gospel for today. Remember last week on the Feast of St. Luke, I talked about some major themes that are in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts. But principally, what I'm talking about today are in the gospel of Luke. What characterize, uh, characterizes Luke's sort of point of view? What, what stands him in relief from the other gospel writers? And one of the things that does is what is called in biblical scholarship the Great Reversal. And the Great Reversal is that um, what we think God is going to do, or what we think righteousness is, turns out not necessarily to be so in God's eyes. Who we think are worthy, who we think are in, uh, and who we think are out is not necessarily true. The big line in the gospel for today, which is the great reversal, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. I guess the situation on the ground for Luke in a Gentile Christian community located in their very annual wherever you decide the, the, the gospel originated from, uh, flows out of the, the uh, circumstances on the ground in that community. So when you read a, a, a parable or a story of Jesus or a saying of Jesus, you need to always, in interpretive ways, when you sit and think about it and meditate about it, think about it in terms of at least three layers. One is, what does the community out of which this gospel emerged mean by this? Why is it important to them? What did it mean to the person who wrote the gospel? And what did it mean at the Jesus level when he spoke it? What was he getting at? And so we're now in a situation where we have a gospel that was written in 85 AD. Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and rose again in 33. So we have 52 years to try to work out the Christian faith and life. It's a work in process. And these individual Christian communities are struggling with the same issues that you and I are struggling with. What is the nature of a proper extension and generosity? How do we understand uh, uh, the feelings of righteousness that we have? And what kind of righteousness do we impute to other people? And what do other people have to do to gain, in our eyes, a righteous position? And so for Luke and for his community, that was an issue. 
Jesus was at pains to say, the kingdom of God is going to be a place where everything gets turned upside down. It doesn't mean that you and I are going to live in a condition of perpetual anxiety and uncertainty. We will live in a situation of perpetual change, won't we? Because that seems to be the law of life. So things that we didn't expect before, we now can take uh, as almost commonplace. That's certainly been true in my lifetime. What I said during the announcements, I can remember driving my grandfather home to work when I was 16 years old from San Francisco in the business car and having him say to me once, if you would have told my father that we can go home and turn on a box and see a guy playing a trumpet live in New York City, he would have laughed. He would have thought you were nuts. So change is with us, right? But when we think about some of the values that we hold near and dear or the expectations that we have about people's behavior, this is an issue, and I think that's what Jesus was concerned with. So let's look at the parable or the story and see what it might mean. I used to read this and think, well, here we have a tax collector. Uh, who likes tax collectors? They have been universally disliked from the jump, right? But that this tax collector, if you were going to paint him in an artistic depiction... And I suspect there are some famous ones. He always looks kind of abject and furtive and sly and a little bit, uh, you know, wearing a thing around his head and kind of, you know, just not very, yeah. And, and the Pharisee looks splendid. The Pharisee's shawl is, looks like it's been ironed. You know, the fringes are long. The phylactery's broad. And he looks like he's a, a pillar of the religious community, well-fed, and so on. Well, the truth of the matter would be that speaking about the great reversal, it would have been just the opposite. The Pharisees in the New Testament have a very bad press. They were actually not a bad group of people at all. In fact, Pharisaic Judaism is what permitted Judaism to continue as a faith tradition after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. They were responsible for uh, the, the creation of what we now call rabbinic Judaism. So the Pharisees have some um, substance. And in all probability, this Pharisee would have been a man who looked very ascetic, who was uh, perhaps had, um, you know, the fire in the belly in his eyes, you know, a certain kind of religious zeal. Uh, a person who had um, deep scholarship and who knew what he was talking about in terms of who was righteous and who wasn't, based on how you sat around and disputed those, those kinds of things. Um, I don't know if you saw one of the MSNBC shows. I can't remember. It was Lawrence O'Donnell. He had on an Orthodox rabbi and a conservative rabbi about a week or 10 days ago. And they were, they were talking about the endorsement one of them had made for this candidate in New York who's running for governor, Palladino. And the Orthodox rabbi had supported him, Palladino, 
and the conservative rabbi did not. But the most interesting thing was is that the scene that we were the witnesses of was very Jewish. And we saw a very significant and substantial dialogue, if you want, between those two rabbis with one another as though the camera wasn't even there. They were having a, a, a real conversation about the Talmud and I got to thinking to myself, there's, an, there's a thing you could draw a line right back to what we're talking about today. So the Pharisee is talking about the fact that he's paid his dues and that he absolutely has dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And he contrasts himself to a list of people, but he points to the tax collector who's there. The tax collector would have probably looked like John Gotti. (laughs) You know, handmade suits. He's prosperous. You know the rules in the ancient Near East. The Roman government, or even the Herodians before that, before the Romans came right in there and sort of took it over. They said, here's the thing. This is the percentage of the tax you're to collect for us. This is what we expect. If you collect more, you keep it. So you can tell why they weren't particularly universally liked uh, at all. And this guy, therefore, has a past. And many things that uh, he's done that in all probability don't bear close scrutiny. And it sounds to me as though he knows it or he's beginning to get some clarity about this, that he knows, knows this sort of thing, you know? Most people who, who understand themselves to be righteous, uh, and even those who, who, who don't, uh, make progress in fits and starts. So there's always backsliding going on. And this Pharisee doesn't appear in the story to be somebody who has contemplated the idea that... Uh, he could be mistaken about these things. So the tax collector uh, doesn't even raise his eyes, and he asks God for God's mercy uh, on him, a sinner. And Jesus delivers the whopper to the audience, which is the man who goes down to his house justified is the tax collector and not the Pharisee a reversal, who has received God's approval. And that is something that is important because Jesus here speaks to us about the nature of humility. Humility is not uh, a continuous uh, attitude of self-abnegation, you know, self-criticism, groveling, uh, uh, oh, I don't, you know, oh, no, that sort of thing. Humility is knowing yourself. So humility involves knowing also all of those fine qualities that you have that make you who you are, moving in a direction towards the best human being that you can be. And humility also knows something about your limits. Thomas Aquinas said, humility is knowing the extent of your reach and how high you can reach. So it has some idea, it, it has something to do with, with understanding the limits. This is kind of hard to preach on in the Silicon Valley 
or, or for that matter, uh, in the whole American entrepreneurial nip-up that we find ourselves in over the decades. Because we're always supposed to exceed our grasp, right? Isn't that the thing you do? You stretch. Well, I was always, you need, David, you need to stretch yourself, right? And that's probably true. Because your grasp is not always the same. But at the same time, understanding uh, the limits. And I think the hardest thing for all of us, and that is that we are not omniscient, omnipotent, and immortal. None of us wish to come to terms with our finitude and the limits of our ability to understand. Because there's a lot of stuff that's just plain beyond us. And we don't believe it. I talk about my grandfather a lot. He was a huge influence on me. He was a, one of the, he was a person who believed that ever, sooner or later we're going to figure it all out. We will all know how it works. In moral inquiry, by the way, in moral philosophy, the term that is used for that is encyclopedia. In terms of how we understand knowledge, how we understand the way the world works, how we understand human behavior and motives and thinking and all that, we'll just get it all figured out one day. Someday, we'll, we'll be able to answer that and we'll know what it is. And somehow that seems to keep moving away from us, doesn't it, right? It doesn't seem to work too much. But we believe it. And it's part of an, the optimistic aspect of the human character, I think. And uh, so it, it embodies, in my, maybe this is overly uh, florid, but it embodies the kind of optimism of American people that you can do this and someday you're going to be able to figure this out and triumph. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of positive thinking on one level. But on another level, if it uh, operates on the basis of righteousness and who's in and who's out, not good. And this is what I think the Savior is getting at today, that we need to be careful about who's in and who's out. Luke, you know, more than any other gospel writer, was somebody who was concerned about the fact that the salvific purposes of God are being worked out in the ordinary and commonplace activities of human beings in history. And so he was not concerned or in fact uh, 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 sympathetic to the idea that you and I are all toiling and laboring spiritually and religiously for some future time where we will be assured of post-mortem bliss. That the goal of the Christian faith in life is to be a transforming factor within human history. And you and I don't have to think about that in heroic terms. We can think about it in the ordinary and commonplace terms that we live with on a daily basis with our children and our families and in the workplace and in our friendships and in our commitments to uh, reach out and extend. I'm always so impressed uh, when I hear stories at St. Luke's, and there are many of them of people who are involved in many worthy things outside church life, right? I've always believed that your church should be your center, but not your circumference. And there are a lot of people who are doing good things in uh, organizations and, and uh, that are seeking to make, uh, make this a better society to live in.
And once you begin to do that, your definition of righteousness begins to expand a little bit, I think. <clears throat> now, the way into this may be um, uh, have something to do with the, the way the Episcopal Church has been operating recently. You know, we have a lot of uh, conflict and kerfuffles in the worldwide Anglican communion. And some people are just uh, very upset about all of this. They just don't know what to do. And a number of them, I, I'm a, you know, still a deputy to the General Convention and, and soon and maybe again, who knows. But the fact is that on this House of Deputies listserv, there's this constant catena of uh, comments about the fact that we've gone off the rails because we have deserted right belief. That the goal of the Christian faith and life is believing the right stuff. Knowing what it is and believing it. First. Then, if you know it and believe it, you belong. And I have said to you that we are in a period now and maybe always have been within our history as Anglicans where we believe in belonging and then believing. And let's just, say, let's just support this with the historical record. In, the, in 16th century Elizabethan England, all of us would be, have been in by law. And the safety of you being able to, to confess your uh, private opinions about the truth or falsity of any of that uh, would have not been uh, on unless you just... <coughs> didn't care about getting racked or, or persecuted in some way, right? So if you were a Unitarian or a Presbyterian or a something else, a congregation, a free church, a nonconformist, uh, you kept it to yourself or you removed yourself from the process and the scene as best you could. So that meant everybody belonged. They didn't all believe. And Anglicanism has been uh, able to, in some way, uh, poodle along with this idea that we're belonging now together. And so how do we live in the midst of a plural understanding of the nature of righteousness? How do we live in the midst of a plural understanding of how a person ought to comport themselves uh, in, in moral and ethical terms? And how do we understand that we participate together within human history in making a society where it is easier for people to be good? So this parable has a lot to do with stuff like that. And it has a lot to do with you and I taking care uh, not to be too critical of people that are different than us. I find this sometimes trying, extremely trying. Have any of you read the book, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Elizabeth Salander. There's somebody that would have given me the pit <laughs> if I saw her. I, oh, well. And you know what I would have done is I would have immediately just said, she has nothing to say to me. Terrible. And it's a, pri it, it's a prime example of, uh, I think, a contemporary way of, of seeing uh, the differences. 
So this week, uh, don't focus too much on whether you're righteous or not. God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you. And the quality, the ability to express faith, hope, and charity is within everyone. It is what God gives us at our baptism. And so we are able always to live into that and to understand, too, that uh, God is forgiving and God is merciful. So if our faith, hope, and charity kind of go, you know, like this, it's all right. The thing that you need to do is to maintain a forward movement. And let me suggest, if it's possible, if you run into anybody who's too righteous this week, see if you can burst that balloon. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs>